This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spectacular people welcome to this 96th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane and this is denise and today we have listener favorite and our international correspondent <laughs> so we're going to start calling you freya <laughs> freya porter is joining us how are you freya i'm really good This was a suggestion by Freya, and she also did pretty much all the research on it, and it's a location that she's very familiar with. So was this a suggestion by Freya or by her grandma? This is actually a suggestion by me because um, my bumper passed away earlier this year. Okay. And he really loved the location. He actually wanted to be a, a tour guide for it. But oh. he, by the time it reopened, he was too sick Aww. to, to um, do any tours for it. That's what my mom said about it. So, yeah. Oh, <laughs> very cool. So we're doing this in honor of your, you call him Bampa? Yeah, Bampa. Okay, but so this is in yeah. honor of Freya's Bampa then. And that location is Oyster Mouth Castle. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> going, what are they talking about? Well, this is located in a city where you grew up. Is that correct? Or I guess a town it's, is what they would call it. it. It's a weird. It's a weird place because it's a village. It's basically a village with a high street. Uh, it's right next to Swansea City, and it's in the Swansea area. But the place where it is is pretty much a village. Now, is this pronounced Mumbles? Mumbles, yes. <laughs> it is English. You gotta love say that. I'm from the village of Mumbles. Did you yeah. just mumble or? <laughs> <laughs> Well, tell us a little bit about Mumbles. It's gorgeous. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful, it's a tiny town slash small village slash whatever. The Mumbles is basically the, the Bay Area and there's a high street on there, like a main road. Apparently, we call it High Street and Americans call it the main road, Main Street. Okay. Oh, okay. So that's what we would call it, High Street. My my grandparents, both sets of grandparents, live around Mumbles. So near Mumbles or around Mumbles. And yeah, I grew up here. So all my friends are here and everything. Well, not all my friends. I'm sorry, Australian friends. <laughs> yeah, they're all going, what about us? Yeah, you, you go um, back there for holiday and you forget about us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Mumbles is called a headland. Can you kind yes. of explain what a headland is? As basically in Wales, we have, we're basically, most of it is coastline and then there's bits in the middle. And one of the headlands is basically where the two points meet. Okay. <laughs> where the, where the coastline literally comes to a head. So at the, at the head of the coastline, there's the, there's the lighthouse. 
So the Swansea Bay comes to a head at the lighthouse and then it goes round to three cliffs and all of that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so wow. It, it sounds absolutely gorgeous. It is. It is gorgeous. It is the most beautiful. We actually went for a drive today and saw this gorgeous sea and common and it's amazing. It's gorgeous. I really love it. <laughs> Obviously, when I was looking at stuff about it, I saw that it had a uh, Mumbles Railway had been there at one time, yes. and it was considered the oldest passenger railway in the world at the end of the 1800s, which for a small village, that's pretty big. Yeah, it is. It actually still, we have a train that isn't, as far as I remember, it isn't really a train. It kind of runs in the summer. It's a train on tires and it takes people, you know, up and down the coastline. It's really nice. My my little cousin loves it. He's four. That's interesting. A train on wheels. Huh. Yeah, it's like a train. It looks like a train, but it's on tires. Sure. So it's fat tires. It's cute. Very cool. We'd like to direct you to our website and everything you could possibly want to know about the show. You can find it at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if anybody wants to send us any feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we want to welcome to the spectacular crew, Angie. Hey, Angie. And Rhonda. Hi, Rhonda. And Amanda commented over at the History Goes Bump fan page, I love your podcast. I started listening to it about two months ago and I can't get enough. I listen to it while I'm at work and it makes the day go by with ease. I love it all and telling my coworkers about the oddities in history. Thank you kindly for what you two do. You're both joyfully hilarious. Well, thank you so much for that, Amanda. We appreciate that. And then we got a couple of five-star reviews over at iTunes. Granny Square writes, I recently found History Ghost Bump. I'm hooked, interesting, and fun. Thanks for that, Granny. And Spooky and Awesome from Astra Stars, one of my favorite podcasts. These ladies are pleasant to listen to and have great stories. For example, the Magnolia Hotel in Seguin was a fave. Lived there and never knew that one. Would love to hear more stories on San Antonio hauntings. Keep up the wonderful work. Well, Astra, we did do an episode a few podcasts back, probably probably about 10 episodes ago, which featured the Emily Morgan Hotel, which is actually in San Antonio as well. Just right around where you'll find the Alamo. In the middle of this village is Oyster Mouth Castle. Should we all go visit the castle? Absolutely. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime Bonus Cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to this moment in oddity. As if public restrooms are not terrifying places in and of themselves, particularly in the dark of night, there's the Japanese legend of Kashima Reiko to make you never want to enter a bathroom alone again, especially in Asia. Kashima Reiko was a young girl who was attacked by a group of men in a public restroom. They beat her so badly that she was left to die in the bathroom. Kashima had a strong spirit and she did not want to die, so she pulled herself along the ground and made her way out of the bathroom. She screamed for help as best as she could, but no one came. She continued to pull herself along the ground until she came to the Meishin Expressway. 
Unfortunately, she collapsed on the train tracks and passed out, probably from the loss of blood. When she heard the train coming, it was too late for her to move, and the train ran her over, cutting her in half at the waist and killing her. This caused Kashima to become a vengeful ghost. She also wanted to know where her legs were. Her choice of spot to haunt is the bathroom. It could be any bathroom, according to some tellings of the legend, even your own bathroom. When she appears, she not only is horrific to behold, but she will ask several questions, and it is said that if you can't answer her questions, she will tear your legs off. Her favorite question is to ask where her legs are, and the best way to respond to her is to reply on the Mason Expressway. If she asks who told you that, you should reply, Kashima Reiko told me. Then she will leave you alone and crawl away. Kashima Reiko is one creepy and odd legend. You're not afraid of a little ghost, are you? This Day in History. And today's This Day in History is by Stephen Pappas. On this day, January 12th in 1896, the first X-ray photographs in the U.S. were produced at Davidson College outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Dr. Henry Lewis Smith, a professor of physics at the college, performed one of the first X-ray experiments in the country and published his work in the Charlotte Observer. The photo showed a bullet lodged into a man's hand and was considered groundbreaking. Three of his students also produced an image, but their production of an image included some illegal activity. On the night of the 12th, the students bribed the janitor at the university to let them into the medical lab. After three hours of experiments, the three finally developed a successful image. The image showed two 22 caliber rifle cartridges, two rings, and a pin inside a pillbox, as well as a human finger they had sliced from a cadaver with a pocket knife. Years later, one of the students admitted to their wrongdoing, but also pointed out that they had been part of history when he wrote, quote, We kept our picture and escapade a secret, and it was not until later that we realized we were making history for the college instead of just breaking the rules, end quote. You're listening to History Goes Bump. Now, you've been there, correct, Fran? Uh, yes, many, many, many times. I know that they've been restoring it. About how much of it is still there from, I mean, obviously, originally it was much bigger, but how much of it still is retained there? I'd actually say fair bit of it, a lot of it, because it's on the hill and the hill, you know, it comes to a point. There's not a lot of area on top of the hill. So I'd say that the main part of the castle has been pretty well kept. The areas basically where they were restoring were places where it was unstable, I believe. So they give tours and you can go inside of it and stuff, or is it just you can see the outside? You can go inside of it, but only during the season. And the season is from, I think, May to October or September, May to September. So I wasn't able to go in in there, which was really disappointing. I was really looking forward to it. Yeah, because it'd be neat to see. I guess it has some, um, they call it graffiti art for the time back then. So it's not like people of our era went in there and sprayed a bunch of graffiti. It's actually from back then. So that'd be very cool to see that. Yeah, it's it's great. My aunt and uncle, they they took their their two kids, their seven-year-old and four-year-old, there for this year for Halloween. 
because they do a big Halloween thing there and they were like oh we saw the white lady there was all these people dressing up as the white lady and, t- <laughs> and doing story time and stuff and I was like so she's just an actress is that what you're trying to tell me what are you trying to say <laughs> for a minute I there I was like them. oh how cool they saw the white lady <laughs> I know yeah. it's like wow she came out for the party I guess no <laughs> well the castle that's there right now is not what was originally there why don't you tell everybody what was originally there I would call it the starter pack of the car of castles it was a mott and bailey design on the hill which is the starter pack of castles and it was founded by william de Londres following the capture of gower by the normans in 1106 this is a very interesting design we've done a lot of castles on our several different episodes and we've never talked about this before and i actually had never heard of this before but apparently this Mott and Bailey design, the Mott is a mound that they would build from the earth. So basically they'd make a big hill. And then on this hill, they would put a castle keep, which would, I guess, you'd almost call it kind of a lookout tower, I would think. And I guess you could shoot arrows from up there. And then as you came down from the mound, there was usually a makeshift kind of moat. And then you would go across into this fenced off courtyard type area that was the Bailey. And would this be an area where the soldiers and stuff would sleep and eat and do all that good stuff? I believe so. I'm actually not too familiar with this either all I know is like the basics of its design and stuff but it seems like it's a pretty popular kind of defense I guess castle in in Wales you can actually see in the Gower you can see places where it's completely flat like it's basically swampland completely flat and there's a huge hill jutting out of the middle and it looks so weird it looks so weird but I'm pretty sure that that was either used as a castle part of this design or It should have been because it looks like a really the picturesque version of what that would be. Yeah, apparently these were supposed to be easy to build and cheap because they would basically make them out of wood. But still to build a huge mound like that would take a (laughs) lot of effort. And then to get it up on top of it and build something up on top. I don't know how easy I would exactly say that is. And to make it stable enough to support a structure, too. Exactly. Yeah, because we we flood. Um, I don't know if you know, but right now. Everywhere is flooding, not necessarily around me, but in Wales and in Scotland and Northern England right now, we're experiencing terrible floods. And so I'm pretty sure that those places would be quite flooded and the hills, if they were man-made and not natural and didn't have the same kind of structural integrity as a natural hill might have had, then I guess they would be, if they had major flooding there or even a little bit of flooding there, the, the corrosion would have possibly toppled the castle. Sure. If it was up there. Yeah. Well, the Normans, I guess, were the ones who really popularized this Mott and Bailey design. And for people who don't know, the Normans came from northern France, and that's what Normandy is named for, Denise. Normandy. Yeah. And basically, they say the reason why they were so successful in battle when they would capture areas is because of this design. So apparently, it worked very well. That's cool, though. So moving forward, they eventually got rid of the wooden structure because... As we all know, those don't last very long anyway. (laughs) And they replaced it with stone. And now we're going to get into, I guess, the mud of history. (laughs) The Welsh and the Normans did not get along. 
No, this is a typical Welsh reaction to anything. Rebel completely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Freya sent me the battles that went around this castle and going back and forth of who had power of it. And I went, oh my gosh, all these names and all these battles. But we're going to share them with everybody because it's an interesting piece of history. And there's a lot of people who are interested in this particular kind of history, these ancient battles and things. Absolutely. And we have Freya here to pronounce all the names. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> Pressure, pressure. Yeah, I started reading the names of the battles and I'm like, okay, can we just change them to like Sam and Joe or something, you know? So the first battle that we're going to come into is in 1116. Is that correct? Yes. And this was a Welsh uprising, which makes me think that this was already in Norman control. A Welsh uprising burnt the castle down in 1116, and this was led by Griffith Apris Apturder. Now, was this William de Londres? Did he fight with Griffith? No, he was the occupant of... The, the thing with Oystermouth Castle was that the Lords of Gower were technically owned the castle, okay. but they would have stayed at better places. They would have stayed in nicer, better places than castles, because castles were would draft you. So this was probably not the Lord of Gower. This was probably his tenant, okay. his steward of Oystermouth Castle. So the so, steward is the one who's basically trying to hold back this Welsh uprising then? Yeah. So he was the one looking after the castle basically in his stead and going, like, ruling in his stead. So he would have been the one who, if, if stuff started happening, he would be the one in the firing line. Gotcha. So this is the caretaker and he's going to be in trouble. <laughs> yes. He's the one going to be in trouble. Well, that castle did burn down, so they replaced it with a better structure, correct? Yes. It was uh, replaced with stone, I believe, which is a bit harder to burn down. Just a little. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it was rebuilt as a Welsh fortress, and then it was destroyed again when the Normans retook it. And that was in 1137. Also short-lived, just 21 years later, it was destroyed once again. Wow. Apparently, they tried to take it before with a large army, a large Norman force in 1137. But that was wiped out by the army of Hywel Ap Moradath. <laughs> now here's another great name. <laughs> oh, I know, I know this one. Lord Rhys of Dehubath. Look at that. That's awesome. Okay. Lord Rhys of Dehubath plundered Gower in 1189 and besieged Swansea for 10 weeks in 1192. In 1215, Llewellyn the Great invaded Gower and reclaimed the castle for the Welsh. There's some controversy on who exactly took and possibly burnt down the castle. Rhys Grad and Rhys Yayank, allies of Llewellyn ap Iowa, known in English as Llewellyn the Great, attacked Swansea and then started for the castle of Ysturm Gwynath which is Oystermouth Castle, and encamped around it that night. And the next day they took the castle and the town. So apparently there's some scholars who think this Llewellyn the Great couldn't have done this all according to the claims here. So they must think that somebody else helped him? Yes. So the main thing is like some, pe like some people don't people say, oh, it was these guys that did it on behalf of Llewellyn. And then through the years, it's been simplified. So, you know, you simplify something to say, oh, he did it. Sure. Rather than the army of and the specific general of these people did it. Gotcha. And then as, as seems to happen, once it's in Welsh hands, it falls back into Norman hands again. Yes. <laughs> like, back. Yeah, it's like a seesaw. It's like mine, um, mine, 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 <laughs> back and forth. 
Llewellyn ap Gruffydd, Prince of Gwyneth, laid waste to all of Gower in 1257, and despite Edward I's defeat of Gwyneth in 1287, Rhys ap Meredith attacked and burned Swansea and took Oystermouth. That's a lot of fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and laying waste to. These poor people that lived in Gower. It keeps getting laid to waste, too. I know. It's just like, let's burn it. Let's take it. It's just in complete upheaval all the time. I know. We talk about our wars nowadays, and I think, well, compared to back then, it's quite, it's not as bad. I mean, war's not great, but... Yeah. And then between 1403 and 1405, the whole of Gower was controlled by this one Welsh guy, Owen Glyndor. I don't know why the Welsh kept on... Apparently, they all sided with these, with these, like, Welsh rebels they all sided with them even though it says that they laid waste to all of gower they still sided with them now denise you saw the movie braveheart correct i did so <laughs> edward longshanks is the king in that mm-hmm. and he was a real person in history he actually visited Oystermouth castle in 1284 this is just one of those little fun facts oh, okay cool. so he had nothing to do with all these battles then just threw in a fun fact <laughs> After you've burnt and laid to waste, you might as well have something a little cheery, although Edward Longshanks was not a cheery man. <laughs> I was like, yes, such a lovely man, Diane. We have an odd sense of cheering us up here. <laughs> well, now we jump into the 13th century. And this is, this is really interesting as we get into some of this stuff. Yeah, the De Braos, then Lords of Gower, made Oystermouth Castle their chief residence over Swansea Castle. So it would have been Swansea Castle as the chief residence of Gower, um, but they made Oystermouth Castle because it was nicer. Castle in stone, and most of the structures left today are from that period. And um, one of the standing structures is a chapel constructed by Lady Alina, sometimes referred to as Elodora. Actually, most of the sources I looked at later said Alina. So it's Lady Alina de Mowbray. She had a tumultuous life. I was going to ask, how close is the Swansea Castle to Oystermouth? The castle is still standing, according to my grandma, but only a little bit of it. Okay. So not much of it. But that would be in Swansea. Swansea is literally just up the bay. Okay. So it's not that far away. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been too far. It would have been, you know, a horse ride away. Gotcha. It, was, it, it wasn't like it was a couple of days ride. It's just that like, it's like people who are in Swansea prefer to be in the Mumbles because the Mumbles is nicer. <laughs> so <laughs> even back then, I guess the Mumbles was nicer. Okay. Oh, and so that's true of today's day that the yeah. Mumbles is much nicer than Swansea. Oh, yeah, because the Mumbles it has all like the nice things in it. And then Swansea is a big, dirty city. but we won't tell him you said that i actually when you were first talking about mumbles i i googled some photos of it and it is absolutely beautiful it looks like a really neat neat little area i feel so proud even though i didn't contribute to that at all i just feel really proud it's a good place to be from yeah so this lady Um, alina she's pretty important who is she the daughter of um she was the daughter of william de browse lord of gower Um, And he was apparently extremely unpopular with his tenants. And in 1203, one of them complained to the king himself about him. This guy, who was also called William, was kidnapped by the steward of Oystermouth Castle, um, John Owen, in March, and imprisoned in the castle until he withdrew his complaints. Well, that's one way to get somebody to stop complaining. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> We're going to throw you in jail till you stop complaining. <laughs> uh, I just find it so funny. 
like what a way. Alina married her first husband, John de Marbury, in 1298. He was 12 at the time and she was seven. Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. I couldn't believe that when I read that because I was like reading about who she was married to and then they got married when he was 12 and I went, what? (laughs) And then I thought, well, you know, they did those arranged marriages back then, but it seems a little early. I could see you saying... Normally they'd wait, wouldn't they? I would think it's like, okay, you're going to marry this person, but let's wait till you're at least a teenager. Yeah, that's the normal. Thing. I don't know. Oh, these people were strange. <laughs> John de Marbury is named as a Yorkist in the War of the Roses, which was not a good thing to be. Because after her husband's execution for that fact, Alina fled by boat from Gower to Devon. But she was captured and, and imprisoned in the Tower of London. Yeah, that's a place you don't want to be imprisoned. No, you don't. She survived it. And on her release, she obtained confirmation of ownership of Gower for herself and her heirs from the king, King Edward III, and was Lady of Gower in Oystermad Castle until her second husband, Richard de Penshaw, who she met while the two were prisoners in the Tower of London. Aww. And then she died in 1331. A jail romance. (laughs) Basically, that's what it was. I'm really surprised the king was like, oh, yeah, you can come out now and you can also have your land back. That I thought was really interesting, too, because here they've executed her husband for uprising and rebelling. And so she's taken away. I don't know that she did anything wrong other than being married to him. No. And uh, then he's like, sure, we'll let you out and you can have everything back again. So I guess that was nice of him. Yeah. It was the 1322 insurrection with Thomas of Lancaster. I did forget to say that, but. I guess that's not too important. But actually, her cause of death is factually unknown as far as I have been able to research. The use of her chapel was short-lived because the chief residence of the Gower Lords was moved elsewhere after her death. And then basically, we're going to have this huge blank spot in history. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. It it fell into disrepair over the centuries. And then in the 1840s, George Grant Francis attempted to restore it while it was under the ownership of the Duke of Beaufort. In 1927, the Duke, not the same Duke, gave the castle to the Swansea Corporation and today it falls under the responsibility of the Swansea City Council and the local organisation Friends of Oystermouth Castle. In 2010, a £3.1 million conservation project was launched to preserve what remains of the castle. I believe that that would be uh, $4, $4 million dollars around $4.5 million just to keep it in context. Sure. The restoration works have have uncovered many new rich murals, staircases, and various artifacts, while opening up new areas of the castle to the public and constructing a 30-foot-high glass viewing bridge. Yeah, this is something I would not be going on, thank you. Oh, come on, Diane. (laughs) Both of us are scared of heights. The site opened to the public in June 2012, but unfortunately I haven't been able to explore it. Because I only visit, basically I only visit it at Christmas now. But once you're done with university, you'll have more freedom to come and go then. Yeah, definitely. I've already said that the site also runs various events and stuff, the, like the Halloween Spooktacular in October. And we like that word, Spooktacular. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we've given everybody the history. So now 
it's time for the hauntings. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's go talk about ghosties. There's like kind of a main haunting that goes on at the castle, right, Freya? Yes. It's the white lady. <laughs> a white lady, lady. Another one. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's just everywhere. Everywhere. She, she gets around. I tell you what. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> if a place doesn't have a white lady, they're not haunted. <laughs> Wouldn't that be oh, funny great. if it was just one lady in white who's haunting all these places? One entity. She just wanted to be a world traveler in life. And so in death, she just goes traveling and we're all like, oh, there's a white lady there and one there. There you go. Oh, because like she's always characterized as like young and beautiful, isn't she? Yeah. What is it? The same lady. It could be. It's the ghost of a young woman wearing a white robe or dress usually seen around the exterior of the castle. And she always seems to be crying, and the back of her clothing is torn open, revealing a large, bloody gashes. Which makes you wonder if she'd been whipped or something. Yeah, and that's what the main theory is, that she was the victim of a whipping. And there is actually a whipping post located in the the castle's dungeon. My aunt was saying that that's where the ghost stories were held and that's where they saw, you know, the white lady guide telling them about the ghost stories. So that sounds like a pretty good place to go for that. Mm-hmm. Several theories to, as to her, her identity has been put forward, including that she was simply a prisoner or a servant, but the most popular is that she is the spirit of Alina de Marbury herself. The lack of information surrounding her death only adds to the, cred- to the credibility of that. Now, was was Alina ever whipped that you know of, like when she was captured, be sent to prison or anything? No, there wasn't. There wasn't any specific thing saying yes, she was whipped. She might have been whipped at the Tower of London. We don't. That could be where the gashes were from. But if she had bloody, if she had deep bloody gashes in the back of her dress and they stayed bloody after death as a ghost, then you think that she would have died from that. If she kept those gashes in death as a ghost, they're not really that they're not really that attractive. So you'd think that she would have maybe if she hadn't died of it, she wouldn't have really wanted them on show. That's a good theory because it would be strange if she had been whipped at the Tower of London and then she died many years later for you to take on that look rather than either what you looked like right before death or if we get to choose, yeah. say, if we come back as ghosts, we get to choose, you know, do you want to be 20? Or to me, I wouldn't be like, you know, that time I got whipped at the Tower of London, <laughs> I'd like to do that for the rest of my eternity. You know, oh they don't God. know what she died from, though. So who exactly, knows? Exactly. That's who what knows, Freya said. Maybe. Yeah. So who knows if maybe not at the Tower of London, but maybe later in life something happened. You yeah, know? that would be weird, though. And that would be that would mean that like her husband would have had to order it. I was just about to say, I wonder if her husband was a jerk. Maybe it was a prison romance, but, you know, you don't want to go with the bad boys necessarily. No. Yeah, damn it, Alina. <laughs> Look at us. We're making up all no, kinds we, of we so just made, made our whole thing. It's like <laughs> we have our, our own series going now. <laughs> Actually, if you guys were ghosts, I know that. I know that, that Denise wants to be a tie-dye ghost. Would you come back as a tie-dye ghost? I don't know. Like, I definitely, I don't know that I would be a lady in white, unless it was a lady in my dobok. Oh, a lady in lavender. Lavender would be cool. I could come back as a purple ghost. Ooh. That would be kind of awesome, actually, with the light around and like reflecting the purple. Yeah, so I think I'd be a lady in lavender or purple. I'll look out for that when, when you two are gone, because, you know, you're, you're ancient. <laughs> 
up. Freya, some, for some reason, you're not coming through. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> There's so much static. We just lost Freya. That's why she'd say those things across the pond. When she comes to America, we'll get even. From the Explore Gower website, we do have a story. A man letting his dog off its lead to have a run around the castle's spacious grounds was surprised to see his pet suddenly race toward him from behind a tree in obvious terror. Curious as to what had caused the animal's fright, the man walked over to the tree where he saw what he at first figured to be a large white sheet resting on the grass near the trunk of the tree. As he approached the sheet, however, it suddenly emerged from the ground and took the form of a woman wearing a white robe. She then faded from sight like dissolving mist. And on another occasion, the young children of a family picnicking on the castle grounds appeared from behind a tree screaming. When asked what had frightened them, they explained that they had seen a scary lady dressed in a long white robe with a cord fastened around her waist. She appeared to the children as if she'd been sobbing, although she'd made no sound whatsoever. When the children's father went to the tree to see the woman in white for himself, the figure turned her back to the man to reveal her back, bleeding profusely from open lacerations. That's so That is very creepy. And again, having blood that's coming from a laceration on a ghost, it's again, that material that's so bizarre. It's so weird. It's like what I was saying about how, you know, ghosts like choosing what, like how they're going to come out, maybe like you were saying, can you choose what you like, what you come as, as a ghost, what Mm -hmm. you look like as a ghost? How much energy do you think it takes for a ghost to actually drip? blood well and it's interesting because this doesn't seem to be residual because she seems to be reacting to the people around her and she's seen in different different places as well Mm -hmm. yeah the fact that she was when the guy that had the dog that he let run around that is just weird that he sees something that's laying on the ground and then it's like she came up out of the ground yeah i think i know about where they're talking about there's kind of trees surrounding the ground so like the castle grounds there's trees surrounding it and there's dotted trees in there and I'm picturing in my head where he could have been and there's not a lot of places where he would have like if it were lone trees where he would have been able to just walk up and he wouldn't have been able to see the sheet from the other side so I don't know maybe the dog had seen something different you might be right and then let him over to it Mm -hmm. yeah because it like if Rumpy, if Rumpy, for example, saw a sheet on the ground, he wouldn't really be that scared by it. But maybe it was something else, or maybe he's, or maybe j- dogs just more reactive. Yeah, you know, just the sensing of her energy there too. Well, we talk about that animals and children can see more than we do. Yeah, I should add that I remember taking Rumpy a couple times, I think, around the gardens, and my my other grandpa takes his takes their dog around the grounds as well and they haven't seen anything as far as I know as well Mm. so I have done the animal test (laughs) (laughs) does it count I don't know it does well there's this other website called pure spirit and on there is this account in May 2011 a construction worker was tapped on the shoulder while trying to reopen a murder hole Murder holes were these window-like slits in the sides of the walls. They were used by defenders to pour boiling oil, water, or even burning tarred sand down on attacking soldiers, which would be the scene of many horrific deaths. 
The incident made the local press and the worker, Mike Smith, told reporters, quote, I don't usually believe in the paranormal, but it was a strange experience. And I know other staff have experienced some odd goings on at the castle, too. Nothing like this has ever happened to me before, but there are also stories of people walking dogs close to the castle and seeing their dogs barking hysterically at absolutely nothing at all, end quote. So again, there's that dog test. I don't know how many people have actually had their dogs barking hysterically at something. Because like I said, we, I've, you know, I have a lot of friends who have dogs, and my parents have a lot of friends who have dogs, and, you know, I have dogs, and I've never had that experience. Mm-mm. I've only seen them once, but maybe, maybe it's just maybe it's the thing where you know, if you're aware of it, it won't happen or something like that. It makes you wonder why this guy got tapped on the shoulder since he was opening up one of those slits where they were like, "Hey, move out of the way, buddy! I'm going to pour this hot boiling oil <laughs> down the wall." Maybe. Oh my gosh! If it, if they did that, would that have been a time slip? Do you think? If they were like, "Hey, buddy, tap you on the shoulder. I'm going to pour be. this oil." That's what I would say. It would either be that or maybe it could be something residual. But, of course, I sometimes think residual is a time slip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's weird how you hear most of the time about people being in time slips. Like, you know, like I think a couple podcasts ago you did a hotel, and I can't remember which hotel, but the elevator. Some people went down on the elevator to the basement, and there was a nurse or something that actually looked at them. I think that was Gettysburg. And I was like, well... So I've heard about a couple of stories about people saying that they've been in a time slip, but not that a time slip has happened to them, you know, like a person from the future has come and, and they've been shouting at a person from the future, that kind of thing. Oh, that's a good point. Interesting. Yeah. So like, it makes me wonder, like, is that kind of a sign that the future is not going to be very different? Maybe we just see things all the time and... I don't even know about it. Well, I'll tell you what my theory is based on the novel that I wrote. The future hasn't happened yet. So that's mm-hmm. why nothing can be interacting with it. So we can interact with the past, although they're seeing us from the future. So I don't know. It, it makes your brain hurt to think about it. Yeah, it does. I need to, I need to go have a lie down. But... <laughs> in October 2012, Proof, a paranormal investigation team, was called in as part of the Halloween spooktacular celebrations at the castle. So this would have been their opening year. In a video on the Proof TV YouTube channel, the investigators try to communicate with the spirits of the castle using a mix of Welsh and English. I've actually seen videos of Welsh castle investigations before. And some teams specifically want a Welsh language speaker on the team for this reason. It makes sense because it's hard to communicate with a spirit if you don't speak the same language as that spirit. That made me wonder about, like, you know, people trying to communicate with spirits all over the world and they don't Mm -hmm. know their language. Maybe that's why spirits aren't appearing to some people or some groups in some countries because they don't speak the language and they're not speaking the language to that ghost. Exactly. People just always assume it's going to be English. I once heard an EVP that somebody had picked up and it must have been a German immigrant and Mm -hmm. the EVP was in German. So they were taking it around to people who knew German to say, do you understand what this is? Yeah, it makes sense. It makes so much sense. It's not something that I think about until now. So like until I saw the video, until I saw these videos of paranormal research or heard these stories of paranormal research and go, that's so that's such a good idea. That's mm-hmm. such a good idea. Why didn't I think of that before? Why didn't I think about that? So I guess it's not something that you think about unless it's presented to you. The camera work is pretty bad, and I am not altogether convinced on the effectiveness of these devices. But they seem to have possibly made contact with the white lady's spirit. 
The video supports the theory that the White Lady might be Lady Alina de Marbury or possibly a mistress of Lord John Marbury, keeping with the prisoner-servant theory. Well, then, if it was his mistress, maybe it was Alina who gave her the whipping. Yeah. It could be or, or ordered it. Even if she didn't do it, she could have ordered it. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm trying to think of all the different things it could have been because I'm not, I like the idea that it was Alina and I want it to be Alina, but at the same time, I don't want to jump to conclusions because we really don't know. Unless right. somebody, unless somebody comes to me with actual proof and then a lot of reoccurring proof. Right. Like, well, um, of course, most people would want it to be Lady Alina because she's more, you know, she's like the mistress of the castle, not yeah. just some servant. Or I don't want to say that in a derogatory way, but not a prisoner or a servant who didn't have any title. So, of course, they want it to be the, the lady. Yes, definitely. Like, you know how in a scientific test, the you know, you know how you have an experiment and you want the same thing to happen every time? Correct. Mm-hmm. I want that to happen every time and then I will be absolutely sure. And that's that's the main problem with the paranormal is that they can't get that to happen. It's like they put it in a controlled setting and it doesn't repeat itself. Yeah. And that's the scientific method. You have to be able to make it repeatable. Mm-hmm. You can't really do it's. It's like I feel like it's like that with humans, though. You can put them in the same situation and you can't make them do exactly the same thing. Everybody will react differently. That's very exactly. true. Exactly, and, and ghosts were at one point humans before, so that's probably why it doesn't repeat, because we can't be scientifically proven. Well, no. Freya has had her own experiences. Uh, this is what I, I hear and understand. So I'm looking forward so. to hearing this. Yay. Yeah, I might have seen the white lady. Uh, like I said, I'm not, I was really young when I saw her, so I was maybe five or six. As a five or six year old, I don't like to say that I have seen a ghost because I don't kind of trust myself that I have, you know. Mm-hmm. But I remember playing at the bottom of the castle hill and looking up to see a woman in white standing at the top of the hill. And I remember that she was looking sad. And, you know, as a kid, you just think, oh, she's looking sad. And she was wearing a long white dress. And I remember that clearly because. At the time, I remember associating white white dresses with wedding dresses or sure. like bride dresses, you know, as a six-year-old child. Yeah, because um, most people don't wear, I mean, most women don't wear just a white dress. Yeah. I couldn't see her face very well because she was at the top of the hill, obviously. But I remember feeling like she was unhappy. Like you get a feeling when you look at somebody and you might not know them or something, but you make a snap judgment about, okay, they look happy, they look sad, they look angry, they look whatever. And it's not just because their face is looking that way. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I must have looked away, and I think I looked away to tell somebody and then point her out, and she was gone. Wow. <laughs> Either she moved really fast or... Yes. It might just have been a really sad-looking lady in a white dress. But I, I do like to think it was a ghost, even though I say, oh, I was too young, whatever. I'm just trying to be rational about it. Mm-hmm. But I actually do really want it to be a ghost. Well, it's hard because you're like, you know, I was a kid. Am I remembering it right? And, but as we yeah. said, dogs and kids are a little bit more open to that kind of stuff. Exactly. And you would have been at the perfect age for that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I like to think that that's why I had my experience in Port Arthur as well, because I was like in that age range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And nowadays, I don't think I'd get the same kind of experience because I'm too old, maybe. Maybe I'm too old for it or whatever. Yeah, you're pretty ancient. I 
know I am, aren't I? I'm almost as old as you. <laughs> yeah, almost. Got a ways to go. A couple, couple more years there. <laughs> Strange things have occurred at Oyster Mouth Castle. Is this castle haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, it sounds like it might be just based on Freya's experience. At least I'd by say. the white lady. So how much longer are you there with your grand grandmother? Um, I'm here until the 8th of February. So, oh, wow. So then, that's a long stay. Yeah. And then hopefully uni will start um, at the end of February, beginning of March. Uh, I say hopefully because I won't know until the 14th what university I'm going to go to the 14th of January. And of course, that was going to be my next question. Where are you going? So you don't know yet. Wow. I'm hoping to go to UQ and I'm hoping to study international studies. So, Well, that makes sense because you're our international correspondent. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I'm going to study more languages. So you go in when they have you introduce yourself in international studies. You say, well, my name's Freya Porter and I'm the international correspondent for History Goes Bump. Well, I was going to tell the listeners that Freya gave us a bunch of links if you want to look deeper into the history or get through the muddy part of the Normans and the Welsh and all that good stuff. They're up in our show notes. Well, Freya, we want to thank you for joining us again. We always love having you on with us. Absolutely. I really love being on, honestly. And we hear tons of great stuff from the listeners. They really enjoy you as well. So, I'm so touched by it. I actually... I'm so touched by that. That made me want to cry. I was so blushy and everything. My grandma loved it. Anytime we mention Freya, people have nothing but good things to say about you. Just Mm -hmm. how articulate you are. And they don't know how much editing I'm doing. But (laughs) (laughs) She's so articulate. I'm like, are you a patron? Have you listened to the outtakes? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. At least only the people who are like executive producers. how much I fail. Well, of course, they know how bad we uh, fail, too. We all sound, we sound very sharp when the actual podcast comes out. That's true. How much everybody, I don't think we've had a guest on that we haven't had bloopers for. No. Uh, Grazie per avermi. There was her Italian. Thank you for having, thank you for having me. All the Italian people are just cringing right now. (laughs) We want to thank you for tuning in for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. And this has been Freya. You take care. Bye-bye. Executive producers of this episode have been Dave and Ann, Melissa, Levi, Nicole, Jade, Sharon, Cricket, April, Katie, Stephen, Heather, Amy, Tanya, Leanna, Laura, Seth, Tracy, Josh, Barbara, Ashley Griffin, David, Wendy, Roger, Jenny Lee, Dan, Janice, John, Liz, Lana John, Stuart, Kelsey, Laura, Homeworks, and our new executive producer is Diane Moores, who is also a new part of the research crew. Thank you. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump. Listen, the M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.
be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page.